Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm Greg Robinson. Thanks, Greg. Your co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Greg, my co-host. Um, today, we have a very special guest, special for me. Um, Alex Kozlov is a PhD student in the biology program, and I'm glad to have her here because she's my lab mate, and she also works with Robert Cumming. Um, and I've been looking forward to having her on the show for a long time. So welcome on the show, Alex. Thanks, Ariel. Um, to begin, um, our lab studies quite different things. Uh, you're in developmental biology, or the development dev bio, developmental biology Collaborative Sub. specialization. Yeah, it's an interdepartmental specialization. It's not technically a program, but that would be my stream, I guess you could say, within the biology department. Right. So your work falls under the subset of biology, which is developmental biology. Right, from a cell and molecular standpoint. There you go. Okay. So why don't you start us off to tell us kind of what, y what the thrust is of your project? So I study metabolism. Uh, at a cellular level. So basically what the cells eat and how that affects their growth and how it affects their characteristics. So you may have heard about metabolism on the show before. It can affect many different genres of research, anywhere from plant metabolism to different disease models, especially cancer or neurodegenerative diseases. So I'm more interested in regeneration and I'm looking at how to manipulate metabolism in adult cells. So those are cells that we have as adults. So maybe that's our skin cells or our blood cells or even our urine cells as well. Um, but for right now, I'm just looking at uh, foreskin cells. So we can all chuckle about that a little bit. And uh, I'm trying to use metabolism to turn them back into a pluripotent stem cell state. So pluripotent stem cells they exist in the early embryo during development, and essentially they're responsible for creating all of our adult stem cell or all of our adult cells that we have, like our blood cells and our skin cells. So the pluripotent stem cells that I can create are kind of cool because I don't have to extract them from an early embryo, which has a lot of uh, ethical restrictions, as I'm sure you could imagine. I can create them from skin or blood. But that process is really, really inefficient. So I'm trying to use metabolism, so what the cells eat, to see if I can increase the efficiency. I just want to take a step back for the people that don't know some of these terms. I myself, I'm in developmental biology, and so some of this may seem pretty simple for us. But an embryo essentially is just a fetus. An early on, really early form of the fetus. Yes, exactly. So yeah. um, if you have an egg and you have a sperm and then the egg becomes fertilized, you get an embryo and R then that embryo will later become a fetus. Okay. And there's certain cells within this embryo that you called pl are pluripotent stem right. cells. Yes. And pluripotent meaning that... So stem cells, um, they are... They have a potency, is what it's called, and that potency can be totipotent, pluripotent, or multipotent. And essentially what those stages mean is that if you're totipotent, you can become any cell type, not just an adult cell type, but also um, cell types that support the embryo, like the placenta. 
pluripotent stem cells can't create all cell types, so they can't create placental cells, but they can create any adult cell that we have in our body. And then multipotent stem cells, which is not my area of expertise at all, they can exist in us as adults and they can regenerate. Let's say we have niches of multipotent stem cells that help regenerate as we age. And those could be found in your bone marrow. They could be found in your intestines. And so you're taking just a, a regular cell yeah. that has already lost its pluripotency potency entirely it's entirely. just it's a, a specialized cell yeah. essentially it's impotent <laughs> impotent right no? fair enough fair enough <laughs> yeah it's uh it's a specialized cell it has a job yeah. and, yeah. and it's not going to become anything else after that stage unless it were to become diseased yeah and so you're trying to turn the clock back to make it a pluripotent cell again so that it can divide probably into other things. Exactly. And um, one of the reasons for doing that is the idea of regenerative medicine and personalized medicine. So from a personal medicine standpoint, the idea is that if you can take cells from a patient, a diseased patient, and turn the clock back on those cells to an early stem cell state, that you can use those stem cells to model that person's specific disease to create some kind of personalized therapy. Or maybe you can use those cells for cell replacement therapies as well. So when you're trying to turn it into a pluripotent cell, how do you actually know that it is a pluripotent cell, a uh, stem cell? Do you turn, try to then turn it into something to determine so if it is? That's a really great question. Um, the way, so when you're, it's called reprogramming. So when you take a specialized cell, like a skin cell or a blood cell, and you turn it back into a stem cell, they look really different. So if you were to look at them under a microscope, uh, the, the cells that I work with kind of look like pancakes, I guess. Okay. And uh, the, uh, the stem cells, when they f and the pancakes, they don't like to be too close together. So it's kind of like a, if you were to take a paintbrush and kind of whip painted a canvas and you would see a bunch of spots that weren't necessarily close together and picture those as your pancakes. If you have stem cells, the type that I work with, they need to be close together and they form almost like a cobblestone morphology. And that's called a colony and they need to be in that colony to survive. So when you start to see a colony um, from a morphological standpoint, you can actually, um, there's a technique and it's called pick passaging, where you can kind of scrape that colony off of a plate and uh, the plates where the cells are grown and transfer it into a new environment. And the reason we remove that maybe prospective stem cell colony is because cells talk to each other. And if you've got cells that have reprogrammed, but they're around a bunch of other adult cells that did not successfully reprogram, those cells might talk and they might actually cause those prospective stem cells to start differentiating back into their original state. So you want to take them out from where they were and put them in a new area where it's just prospective stem cell colonies. And then at that point, um, you can actually stain them with these live cell fluorescent markers. So cells have different surface markers. They have different identities. So a pluripotent stem cell would have different cell surface markers than um, an adult cell, like a skin cell or a blood cell. So you would take those stains and kind of just throw them into the 
cell culture media. So that's like the food that the cells grow in. And then you can look at them under a microscope. And if you see the color, let's say your stain is red and you see red, then you know that, okay, that's expressing pluripotent markers. But you had a really good point about looking to see if that stem cell can differentiate again, right? <laughs> So the, um, the exact definition, I guess, of a, of a pluripotent stem cell is that it can differentiate into what's called the three germ layers. So as adults, we're comprised of what's, or in the, in the developing embryo, there are three distinctive layers, and I won't get into what those are because it doesn't really matter, but um, all the organs in our body are derived from different layers. So our nervous system is from one layer, but our lungs are from a different layer. So essentially what you want to do is uh, these layers, so the different tissues within these layers share similar markers, kind of like how the stem cells had one marker and the skin cells had a different marker. Now there are also markers that are shared, let's say, between skin and your nervous system because those are part of the same layer. And what you can do is you can take pluripotent stem cells and you can kind of cause them to, um, to detach. So when you're, when you're growing cells, um, they like to stick to the bottom of the vessel that you're growing them in. But there are ways to cause them to pop up and float around um, into suspension. And because the stem cells like to be close together, they'll create these clumps that we call embryoid bodies. So an embryoid body is a little bit more differentiated than the stem cells. So you can actually stain those bodies for different markers of those three layers to as a, kind of a, an in vitro, so an out of the body look at what's going on. Now the best technique to use is to take those pluripotent stem cells and put them into a mouse that's immunodeficient. So if the mouse is lacking an immune system, it is susceptible to forming tumors that we call teratomas. So if you can create a teratoma with your stem cells that again expresses markers of the three layers, then you know that you have pluripotent stem cells. It seems like an awful way to tell. Yeah. Give, give a mouse <laughs> or give a rat cancer. I know. <laughs> it's pretty brutal. Um, mm. But if you're just looking for efficiency right off the bat. It's very quick. The, the quickest way is just those cell surface markers. Oh, yeah. yeah. But then if you're going to be using those cells later or it's really important to fully characterize the pluripotency, then you'd want to take the in-body, out-of-body, and visual approach. Yeah. While we're going down this area, if you don't mind me asking, I know this is probably outside of your research, but how well are we actually taking these embryoid bodies or even just these pluripotent stem cells and turning them into specific things, like turning them into like a, a red blood cell or turning them into like various cells in the body that we would want, like a kidney cell or a So that is cell. out of my depth in terms of yeah. uh, what, I, what I know specifically yeah. about that process. But um, I do know that there are several differentiation protocols out there. Yeah. Um, the easiest route is actually neuronal. Um, the really? cells seem to like to go down that route. Um, hmm. But yeah, you can differentiate into different... Yeah. Uh, I don't know how many different cell types, but I would assume very many. And what's actually starting to emerge is it's called direct differentiation. So instead of taking, let's say, a skin cell, turning it into a stem cell and turning it back into a neuron, uh, I don't know if you can actually take skin to neuron directly, but I know that there are protocols that idea. emerging where, Something that, like where that. that's possible. Hmm. 
Interesting, because that, that would be the next step to once you've induced this pluripotent still, and it that also therapeutic-wise. Yeah, and it also depends on why you're creating those pluripotent stem cells. So you don't always need to differentiate all the way back to pluripotency. So let's say you wanted, um, you wanted cells. So if you have a, a multipotent stem cell that exists within a niche in your body, like your bone marrow, and that's going to differentiate into different types of blood cells that you want to turn one blood cell into another, you'd only need to go back to that multipotent stage before you could go out again. It just depends how different you want to go. Yeah. So we've talked about the purpose of this, like potentially this could be very therapeutic to make an organ or something on those lines. Organs a little bit farther out there, but you can make cell types and whatnot. But um, how exactly are you do using metabolism to induce this pluripotency. What specifically about metabolism are you are you using to reprogram it? So that's a really good question because we mostly just talked about chapter two of my project, which I mostly know in theory and not so much <laughs> in, pra in practice yet. Um, but I'll try and keep this minimally technical, but okay. when you're reprogramming, so it requires the introduction of these four genetic factors, which force an adult cell to start becoming a stem cell. So it changes its genetic information. And the way that we introduce those factors into the adult cells is by using um, a virus. Now, the virus doesn't contain any of its viral genes anymore. It doesn't integrate into the DNA of the cell in question but it kind of just acts as a little transport vessel that gets these genetic factors into the cell. Now, these factors were, this process was established in 2007, which was kind of crazy and really exciting. And it's just been one of the most fundamental findings in the field, but it's extremely stressful. So you'll lose many, many cells just after that happens. But those cells that survive will um, we'll start to exhibit uh, a very specific and characteristic metabolic profile. So cells, two of the main pathways in cellular metabolism are called uh, glycolysis and uh, oxidative phosphorylation. So what are these? I'll, <laughs> don't worry, I'm not going <laughs> to leave it there. So <laughs> when, we, um, when we eat carbs, we get uh, a metabolite called glucose, and that's basically just sugar. Now this sugar needs to be broken down so that we can gain energy. Now the first step of breaking down that sugar doesn't require oxygen. Our bodies can do that um, without oxygen at all and will produce a little bit of energy but not a ton of energy. And that stage is called glycolysis. Now the second step in that process, you get an end product of glycolysis um, from the sugar and that sugar is broken down into something called pyruvate. And that's not necessarily important for what we're talking about, but um, that end product will then undergo a second step of metabolism uh, in something called the mitochondria. And I'm sure we've heard many times the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. So the mitochondria is giving us energy. So you can produce a lot more energy through mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation per one sugar unit than you can through glycolysis. Now the caveat is that during oxidative phosphorylation you can get these byproducts 
And these byproducts are really, really important for, uh, for maintaining normal cell functioning, but when they build up, they can become really toxic. It's kind of like everything in moderation. So if you have one chocolate, that's really great. But if you have chocolate for all your meals, that's not going to be so good for you. And that's kind of what these signaling molecules called reactive oxygen species are. And you may not have heard of them, but I bet we've all heard of antioxidants. I feel like antioxidants are being forced on me through social media. And <laughs> essentially, <laughs> what yeah. these, the purpose of these antioxidants is to just banish the reactive oxygen species. And it's true, you don't want them to accumulate. That can lead to disease, cancer, neurodegeneration, dementia, all kinds of things. But if you have too few, you can also get cancer because your, cell <laughs> your cells might not notice that something's wrong. So mm. these are kind of like the bodyguards of the cell. They can see that one cell's doing something weird and the cell will release a bunch of reactive oxygen species and then that cell will die because it knows that something's damaged and something's gone wrong. But on that note, when you reprogram, as I said, the cell's really stressed after it has this onslaught of genetic factors through a virus. It's like someone trying to shove something in your brain. It's not a, it's not a pleasant experience. So um, to recover from that stress, they try to produce more energy. So they, they undergo oxidative phosphorylation. This in turn allows them to grow really quickly. They're trying to rebuild their population, but they're also producing a lot of those reactive oxygen species. Now these signaling molecules tell the cell, hey, we have to defend ourselves. We need to do something about this because we're accumulating much too many of these reactive oxygen species. And so I'm investigating that process of how these molecules can help switch the cell from oxidative phosphorylation to, if we remember the first one, was glycolysis. Because stem cells primarily use glycolysis to produce energy, whereas adult cells primarily use oxidative phosphorylation. Fascinating. Yeah, I know it's a lot. <laughs> That's the way. I mean, you, they, you're trying to make these cells resilient to the stress that you're actually imposing on them, but you have to impose it on them in order to do the reprogramming. So it's exactly. like, let's stress them, but then find a way that they can like take the stress, do what we said to do, which is be re reprogrammed, but also not everybody dies because it's so stressful. <laughs> exactly. So what a lot of groups have found is that if you can promote, there's this very specific moment in reprogramming called a metabolic switch. And now the switch isn't literally a switch. It does take time. But um, if you promote glycolysis after the metabolic switch, this improves reprogramming efficiency. So as I mentioned, glycolysis doesn't require oxygen. So if you put your cells in an environment that's very low in oxygen, like right now we're breathing in about 20% oxygen. You put those cells in an environment where it's only 1%, that's been shown to increase reprogramming efficiency. Hmm. But uh, other studies have shown that actually right before that metabolic switch, if you can almost enhance that reactive oxygen species response, that that can also increase reprogramming efficiency. So my project's looking at an alternative way to kind of facilitate that switch instead of injecting toxic chemicals like wasp venom to create reactive oxygen species or 
more costly and sometimes difficult procedures like culturing cells in what's called a hypoxic environment when there's low oxygen. I've done it. It's a little challenging, <laughs> but uh, it's possible. This is just a different approach. So can you, can you give us an idea of like um, how inefficient this actually is? So pr presumably it's like this is a this is a wor uh, worthwhile avenue of research such a like it's it's preventing people from being able to actually do this and, and use it as a therapy this reprogramming method so how how bad is it so it's interesting because if you go to a talk and someone's promoting a new way to reprogram adult cells into stem cells and they'll say oh yeah this this product gives you really high efficiency and i'll always put my hand up and i'll say sorry can you clarify how high that efficiency is and that's 1%. So, <laughs> the so that's, <laughs> using like 1% of the cells survive? Yeah, so my cell line in spe like specifically that I use has a reprogramming efficiency of 0.001 to 1%. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it depends on the method that you use. So I'm well versed on the non-integrating virus method. Um, so I use it doesn't matter what I use, but you can have viruses that integrate into the DNA and those that don't. And it's ones that don't integrate into the DNA are safer. So those are more of the processes being used now. But uh, different groups are trying to do this reprogramming without the virus with, or without the genetic factors. And that's been done in mice with an onslaught of various chemicals, but not quite. We haven't eliminated all four factors in human cells yet. There's also um, different processes, microRNAs that I know absolutely nothing about. I don't even think I could explain <laughs> what a microRNA is. I just know that I've read it and I've seen numbers up to 4.4% efficiency, but using a different method than the one I'm So maybe that's exploring. the bar. We gotta get at least higher than like 4.4 <laughs> if not, we can. I'm not sure if that's the bar. It's more so just seeing if you can get higher than the status quo for the method that you're using. Because mm -hmm. if you can apply that to your method, chances are you could apply that strategy to other methods as well. Very cool. You know, this, um, if you manage to find a better way to do this, I mean, this could definitely be really helpful in generating some stem cells for use in like personalized medicine, like you said. Exactly. Um, was, I'm wondering, uh, what was your interest before you started in this lab? Like, how did you get onto this project? Uh, how did you, how did you decide to go down this research path? Hmm. So I'd say it was, uh, a lot, a lot of, uh, tenacity and a lot of luck, a nice combination of the two and, um, passion as well. So when I was in the seventh grade, this is going to sound really cheesy, but it is all true and I'm a super nerd and I love it. When I was in the seventh grade, um, my my uh, my science teacher had microscopes for our lab and, and we got to look at an onion skin under the microscope. And I thought that that was the single coolest thing that I had ever seen ever. I learned all the organelle names, organelles that I did not need to know as a 13-year-old. Knew all about the Golgi apparatus. I probably knew more about it then than I do right now. I'm not sure I could tell you many facts about it at this moment. Uh, I would doodle them in my notebooks. It was like that level of interest. And I came home from school and I told my parents I was going to become a cell biologist. And they said, that's very nice. And then they drove me to my ballet lesson. <laughs> and uh, I, I, did, uh, I did change my mind a few times about what I wanted to do, but I always loved science. And I never had a doubt that that was something I, I was interested in. But I also really wanted to help people. 
and I just wasn't sure how to how to do that. And I also knew that I liked teaching. I went to a camp most of my life, and then I uh, I was a, I worked there for a little bit as a counselor, as a sailing director. I always enjoyed community outreach, and I feel like when you're in high school and you tell someone you like science, they say that's great. Are you going to become a doctor or a dentist? And those are two really really important professions and we have Netflix series like Grey's Anatomy that really promote um, being a physician and it's awesome but I've never seen a Netflix series about someone who wants to become a molecular biologist now if there was one I definitely watch it but it's just not something you're used to so like any high school student I thought oh maybe I'll go to medical school then I I came to Western because I really I loved their science program and I loved the versatility that you had within science that I think I switched my major every single year. Ironically, <laughs> my uh, my fourth year of my undergrad was the same program I was in in my first year. I just had to do a little <laughs> loop around first. <laughs> um, and that's because when I was in high school and we would have labs, the coolest labs were always the chemistry labs, always. And I had a really cool chemistry teacher that was probably responsible for that. So I just knew I liked working with my hands. And I thought, OK, I like chemistry. Maybe I want to be a pharmacologist. So I took some pharmacology courses at Western, and I really enjoyed them. It just I wasn't as good as them as I was at the biology courses. And I didn't really enjoy it as much as I thought I might. So. I ended up switching around a little bit, went from a pharmacology and biology double major to a minor in pharmacology to just pure biology. And I took a, I took a third year cell biology course um, with uh, Dr. Ann Simon. And I remember taking that course and saying to my TA, I said, I want to do my PhD in molecular and cell biology and I want to become a professor. What do I do? And she said, you have to go to Dr. Cumming. So I uh, knocked on his door and begged my way into getting a summer volunteer position, which uh, worked its way into a paid summer position through my now co-supervisor, Dr. Dean Betts. And uh, from there, I did an undergrad fourth year thesis project. And I was actually supposed to work on Huntington's disease as an undergraduate volunteer, but then a grant came in for this cool stem cell project. And I remember Dr. Cummings saying to me, what do you know about stem cells? And I said, not much. And he said, well, I've got a paid position if you want to switch your volunteering to this and you want to give stem cells a shot. And I absolutely loved it. And that kind of morphed into what I'm doing now. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's an incredible coming of age story. <laughs> a lot of uh, ups and downs and top turns. But um, it seems like the path has been narrowed um, as you went and found found your way pretty well yeah stem cells are cool I find uh, all research is important and I just find it refreshing to research something that is basically the f it's founded on hope and solving problems and it's such a great field to be in as a young scientist too because the science the field itself is so young so it really promotes trainee development and it's just been the most fantastic opportunity and it's a lot of luck <laughs> Well, uh, on that note, thanks for uh, thanks for telling us your story and about your work. Um, we don't have much time left, so the last thing we like to ask uh, most our guests is, um, you know, if somebody really wants to reach out to you and or 
find out more about your work, um, where can they go? Does your lab have a website or do you have a website or do you have any social media presence? Where can they find you? So my lab does have a website. I don't know. Do you remember the name of the website off the top of your head? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's thecominglab.com. Okay, so you can go there. You can also look up my name on the biology department directory and you can get my email through there and I'm always happy. I still talk to students I've TA'd two years ago to help them through their undergrad and their grad school and now some of them are in grad school so always happy to chat excellent okay well thanks for coming on this is uh being gradcast and we've been interviewing uh alex kozlov uh i've been your host ariel frame here with my co-host greg robinson um and um yeah gradcast is the official radio show and podcast for the society of graduate students at western university uh to listen to us you can find us in lots of different places online our website is gradcast.ca uh, and we've got Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, everything you can find us. Find us there, um, even YouTube nowadays. We have an excellent social media presence as well. If you want to find us on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, uh, we're at Gradcast Radio. So search for at Gradcast Radio and uh, you can find us everywhere. If you want to come on the show or you want to join the committee, just email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.